night. Uh, I'd like to continue the theme of non-doing, but with a a twist. As I was mentioning before, um, much of meditation is endless talking about (laughs) non-doing. In fact, you can almost every Dharma talk has that uh, perception within it or it wouldn't uh, really hold much dharma to be honest and it's 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 quite amazing that we have to do as much talking as we do uh, to figure out how not to do uh, and uh, it's because uh, it's the last thing that we will default to we're much uh, we're very quick to act or react we're very quick to lead to fix, to construct, and to arrange, to influence, to order. We're not so quick to lead with, as I, last week's homework, lead first with understanding, seek first to understand before being understood, seek first to uh, receive the situation before we uh, translate it into an action for us and yet uh, we're sort of looking right in the middle of this thing last talk I uh, sort of structured the way the meditation practice itself is built around non-doing and how every instruction and every methodology we give in this practice really has at its base a sense of uh, the pendulum coming to zero. <clears throat> because everything else really is a, um, a we're, we're attempting to self-confirm, self-substantiate, to validify who we are. And it's really not until we bring forth a different um, posture to life that we can allow truly the spiritual heart to enter the situation. Up until that point, although it may be a little harsh to say, really our lives are lived in the service of disconnection. Disconnection. And we wonder why we're as lonely and feel as isolated as we do, as cut off as we often feel. So, there are many ways to frame non-doing. Non-doing, when we just say non-doing, it sounds passive. It, uh, it offers a quick argument. I can't not do. Like, I can't live not doing. I mean, not doing is... We think of passivity. We think of lethargy. We think of being lazy. We think of all the things our parents told us we would be (laughs) if we didn't work hard. And uh, so uh, it it fills, there's a vacuum it fills. It fills a a kind of um, of a neurotic way that we most fear ourselves becoming. So we're going to reframe it. We're going to reframe it. Because in that non-doing, 
instead of putting words like emptiness, no self, let's put words like presence and vitality. Let's put words like receptivity and listening. Let's put words like what I want to talk about tonight, which is learning. Are you ever more alive? Are you ever more present? Are you ever more connected, focused than when you learn? When you're really learning? And are you ever more receptive than when you're really learning? That is the art of non-doing. You see, it's not a passive inaction. There is action in non-doing. There is vitality in non-doing. And it's easy to create a mental argument for why we shouldn't or cannot live non-doing. It's a little harder to argue against a posture of learning. And that is all we mean, really, in the essence of the word not doing. Learning is at the heart of what we are attempting, the posture we're attempting to assume in meditation. And learning, in the way I am using it, is a verb. It's an action. It's automatic. When awareness touches an object, there is something that is communicated in that relationship. That is the offspring of understanding. That is the ch- child of insight. That is the beginning of wisdom, that communication. But if we're full of doing, we're not so interested in what the communication is. We're not so interested in the link, in the receptive learning. We're interested in interfering with that learning with our Opinions, ideas, conclusions, our direction, our influence. We're interested in taking that learning, bringing our own set readiness and ideas to it, and then um, creating um, activity from that. In fact, even the word learning, when we think about it, we usually think we, we let it in, and then we mull over it. Okay, is this right? Or we don't all we don't let it in uh, unencumbered or unconditionally. We filter what we like and don't like about what we hear, screening out through the mind's door what we think is appropriate and inappropriate, and then we let the rest in, but not. We, we allow ourselves to be touched by it, but not truly affected by it. And it's only the top three inches of our six feet that we'll, we'll hold it, we'll screen out it getting down any deeper. And that's very much the intellectual process, although anyway. But the point of mindfulness, you see, the point of mindfulness is to reveal. The reason that we practice mindfulness is not mindfulness for mindfulness sake. Mindfulness is just the creation 
of the connection. It's just a, it's just a connection. From that connection, revelation occurs. Learning happens. But many of us who are mechanically inclined, task-oriented, just try to make the connection. We don't realize that the spirit of the connection is the learning that the connection provides. We just want to try to make the connection. Just be present. Just be, a, And we block out the true uh, quality of mindfulness, the richness of mindfulness itself. It's a little bit like, I remember in being in the first grade and having one of these huge pencils, you know, the big lead, and you're trying to figure out how to write and make it all, and, uh, you know, make them do the mechanics of it. And there's no creativity that comes at that level. All we're trying to do is just get the, you know, figure out how to make the word, put the word on the page, put the letter on the page. And when we begin our meditation practice, it's very much like, you know, that. We're just trying to figure out how to touch anything. Usually we're not touching anything. Our life is so disconnected up until our spiritual practice that it, it doesn't touch anything. It just goes with thought, thinking. It doesn't touch anything true. It doesn't touch anything uh, meaningful doesn't touch anything real or touch it touch that's too too absolute it touches very little that is meaningful it touches some things but very little that's meaningful because mostly we're up in our mind and we see that and so the whole first evolution of the practice is to try to figure out how to touch things and to stay with it for some duration and so so much of our energy just comes back and returning to our breath and staying there as long as we can sustain that attention before it takes flight again into the disconnection. And then we may have moments in which we can actually touch something for a few breaths and we feel very self-gratified in our accomplishment. We feel like we're improving. We feel like we're getting somewhere. because, And we've sort of arrested our practice with the task of touching rather than feeling what is touched rather than what is communicated in that touch being receptive to that what is being communicated receiving what is being communicated learning from what is being communicated that's really when the practice moves from mechanic, mechanical science to the art and humanity of our life. And yet it's absolutely essential if our spiritual heart is to take bloom for us to move from the mechanics to the art form of the practice. And yes, the mechanics are extremely important. I mean, Buddhism really puts a right emphasis on developing a sustaining quality of attention because without attention, nothing can, there's no conduit for communication to occur. So mindfulness and application of mindfulness and sustained contact is important. I, I, I can't listen to you unless I'm paying attention to you. I can't listen to life unless I'm 
making contact with it. And so the Buddha rightfully emphasized the mechanics of the practice so that that could occur. But once that occurs, the life of the practice comes in. Then it's, then it's the richness of it. The richness of, of it. And we have to be very careful what is directing our learning. Because our learning it often is only partially, uh, it's, it's conditional. It's learning what I want to learn, learning the pleasant things about me, learning what I like. And behind it, there may be a lot, uh, there may be a whole psychic posture of avoidance, of uneasiness, of unworthiness, or a, a psychic posture of neurosis, fear. And it's interesting that we won't allow the mindfulness to touch that which is the, which is the closest thing to us which is the fear. Early on what we do is we use the mindfulness. We may have afraid of maybe afraid of pain. So we kind of glance at it and then allow ourselves to think about other things more pleasant or go to a sensation of the body that feels a little more comfortable and eased than this painful sensation. And we don't realize that the avoidance that is driving the mindfulness. You might say the person behind the beacon who's guiding the light, we don't allow the mindfulness to capture that person. We don't allow the mindfulness to capture that avoidance. Okay, what am I avoiding right now? You see, when we ask that question, then the learning becomes less conditional. The beacon's light becomes more 360. And what we are attempting to do with mindfulness is to make the beacon a full range spectrum of light that covers all, all things so that no tendency arises without our knowing it arising, that it's arising. So in your practice, the willingness to be subtle and listen clearly and closely to what is motivating your contact, to what is motivating you moving from one object to another, what is motivating the unrest or the sleepiness. Is there something down there, a layer that's down there, that is driving this agitation and worry, this planning mind that occurs? Rather than just watching judgment, 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 is there something of a, a, a quality or mood, emotion, an attitude, an assumption that's driving that assumption? Experientially, here, in now, in the moment, when the judgment is happening, I'm not talking about an analysis, I'm not talking about figuring, about figuring out where judgment comes from and how my mother did this. I'm not, that's not the, it's immediate. Can the beacon shine its light on the subtle influences that are at play and what we're and why we're doing what we are doing? 
to see what is closest at hand takes um, extraordinary humility and fearlessness fearlessness really when we open ourselves to making contact we don't know what that contact is going to tell us about us you know this is open ended this is um, this is sitting down with your the teachers that you've had throughout your grades and hearing feedback this is all the report cards you've ever received <laughs> this, is, this is every annual evaluation you've had in your adult life and for us to be willing I mean it's, it's an extraordinary courage to open this beacon up to actually begin to look at what it is and why it is that I'm doing the things I'm doing you can see why we narrow it and keep it very externalized so that it won't show us those assumptions so it won't show us those attitudes and yet a spiritual practitioner a sincere spiritual practitioner begins to love learning for its own sake just love of learning just the love of self-knowledge there's nothing more difficult and yet there's nothing that's richer and more interesting where you can really you get excited about it and at first as the uh, tell us self-knowledge is bad news but then it becomes the rich and rewarding news that allows us to pull the the tentacles of our own sorrow out of the ground to pull up the roots of our own um, anxieties and we feel the lightness of being able to do that we feel the the interest that requires us being able to do that so learning intellectual learning is a means to an end we read we study we fix the knowledge and then we can be a teacher or then we can write books or then we can be a professor somewhere so it's a means to an end but self-knowledge the learning that we're talking about here is not a means to an end it's an end in itself now learning it's interesting what we learn is what our relationship is to whatever is going on all problems are created in the relationship to something not in the something itself <clears throat> to really learn that to really understand that frees you from a whole sense of accusation and blame that much of our life has been composed around 
when we think it's the object that the problem resides in, then we're not interested in the relationship. We're interested in the object, the person, the thing, the event. But the problem, the challenge, is in understanding our reactivity to the object, not the object itself. And our reactivity is the relationship we have with the object. You see? It's whether we like the object or not, whether we don't like the object or not, whether we're trying to avoid it or not, whether we're trying to get rid of it or not, what we're trying to do in relationship to this object. That's the difficulty, not the object themselves. All objects are essentially neutral, zero. They have no um, inherent uh, charge to them. None. That includes your boss. And it includes your mother. All, all objects, all things are neutral. We give it the balance, the charge. We give it the problem. And therefore, whenever you find yourself having difficulty with a person in relationship, just say to yourself, it's never about them. It's never about them. No matter what, it's never about them. Now let's look at an example of that. Let's just take a very practical one, physical pain. And I'll tell you what, how I started when I, the first meditation retreat I did was a meditation retreat with a man who made us do vow hours. And we would sit uh, very stoic-like and we were taking vow for that hour that we wouldn't move, that we wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't adjust our position, we wouldn't stretch our leg, we wouldn't move our back, we would sit perfectly still. Uh, as much as we could possibly do that. <clears throat> and then the morning went from 8.30 to 11.30. And if you made it from 8.30 to 9.30, you could decide to get up and leave after the vow hour or take another one. And then after 10.30, you could do the same thing. You could stay on until 11.30. Now I was a young guy and uh, I was sitting with I didn't know it at the time, but I was sitting with very experienced meditators and I was just plunked myself down in the middle of this camp of very experienced meditators. And um, after one hour, I was very ready to leave and nobody else was leaving. <laughs> and I looked around and I said, well, okay. I mean, I, I you know, Okay, so I, 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 from there's 8.30 to 9.30, a sweat was beginning to <laughs> moisture, and my, uh, the knee and ankle pain I was having was certainly, the fire was well lighted. And at 10.30, it was a bushfire. <laughs> and a perspiration down, and nobody got up. <laughs> and I knew I was in a fix then. Yet my um, egocentric ways, my arrogance, wouldn't 
give in, wouldn't go move towards kindness. It moved towards further into brutality. And so I sat there for a third hour, not moving. Well, in subsequent meditations, at the slightest uh, touch of pain, I was out of there because I had scarred myself so deeply from that meditation retreat, which was 10 days, that I had actually built a whole fear relationship to pain that was much more acute and distressful than my orig- when I first sat down. I had lost my ability to learn, and in its place I had built a relationship of fear. And so what would have been something I could examine became something I took flight from. And so there was no learning going on at all. There was just bailout and panic that set in. So I don't offer that as the formula for success except to learn from my mistake. To always lead with kindness rather than brutality. Always. You don't gain anything. In fact... If you think of a learning environment, it's one of benevolence. It has to be. You have to feel safe in it. You have to feel completely comfortable and relaxed within it, or there's no learning really that takes place. You can't learn with... Which I, had a, I was in India, I was still a monk, and I, was, I just decided to do this meditation retreat with this other monk who was an Indian. And he... Um, stood over us as we were sitting. By this time I was I had been practicing enough so that I knew insanity when I saw it. <laughs> but he would stand over us and say, Are you following your breath? Are you following your breath? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so kindness, you have to have you have to have an atmosphere. You have to have an environment of comfort. And I don't mean comfort in terms of everything's pleasant. I mean where you're relaxed, where you're at ease, where you can release any kind of tension. So that's the environment that we try to set up for meditation. Why is that environment important? Because no learning takes place. And we, what we'll do is just fix a... a, 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 a a brutal defense against something if we're unsafe rather than to be really open. Remember we're talking about the attribute of not doing, non-doing. So non-doing requires safety. It requires, in a positive sense, courage, faith, that things will turn out and be safe even without my constantly manipulating everything to suit my desires in that moment. So pain comes to us. And it's unpleasant. And we learn that no matter how long you sit and are with pain, it doesn't just the alchemy of pain doesn't move it into the pleasant. It doesn't become pleasant. And some people have a misunderstanding of that. They think, you know, that they can, at some point, they'll reach a point where it won't, won't be 
unpleasant at all. They'll just kind of cruise and it'll just be, it remains unpleasant. <laughs> Let us be clear. But it's our relationship to the unpleasant that we learn about. That's something we can learn about. We learn how we don't like it and how what we make a big storyline about it. See, we're learning all this thing. All this is happening within the context of the space. The space is providing, the space is awareness. Awareness sees, sees what is passing in front of its eyes. I don't like this. And then the story starts blowing itself up to become fear. Now no longer is it unpleasant in which we can we can mostly unpleasant when it hasn't reached the threshold of fear can be dealt with just as unpleasant it's unpleasant it's unpleasant but the space can be made for something to be unpleasant it's when it becomes fearful that it breaks down when it becomes fearful it means thought has taken over and it has built it to be something more than what it is it has been it builds it to be a worst case scenario which is only can be done by thinking. It can't be done by the object. The object is just what it is. It's not a worst case scenario. It's just what it is. Now, I think this point is so important that in January, I'm going to do some 14 classes on fear. Because I think we've got to get this, we've got to understand this thing or it'll drive our life for the rest of our life. But I'm just, I'm just giving you, a, I'm just giving you a brush stroke here. So we learn how fear of something is really what, how we suffer. You see, we're learning all this. We learned, we touched pain, we felt it unpleasant. We felt the unpleasant move into fear. We see that. We're learning about that. We learned that once it's in the state of fear, it's reached the threshold of fear. Now it's no longer unpleasant. It's tragic. It's no longer the unpleasantness of physical sensation of pain, it's I'm going to have an amputation here if I don't get up. I'll never be able to walk on it. It's the old injury. It's, you know, we learn about that. We learn about the emotional reaction we have when fear comes in. We learn about our fear of fear. We learn about that. We learn then about how we suffer because that is incumbent upon the whole way we build upon the unpleasant. Now we learn something else. We learn about where the sense of I comes in because there's the unpleasantness and then there's suddenly, I don't like it. When it's just unpleasant, it's neither, it's, okay, it's unpleasant, but it's not liked or unliked. It's just unpleasant. But then when fear comes in, the whole sense of me comes in with it and it's me who does not like this and who's going to have a tragic story if I don't move. And so the sense of I is built upon that whole um, explosion of thought and emotion that comes into the vortex, into the vacuum of our experience in that moment. And we learn about that, you see? And now mindfulness is awake not only to the psychological impact of having fear and anxiety in my life, but we're learning about the way fear is actually built, the substance on which it is built. 
we're learning about how this sense of I is built upon that substance of fear, you see? This is all from the contact of making, we're making with the knee. And our willingness to broaden the environment, the inclusivity of that learning, so that we're not taking a stand and just making contact with the unpleasant and driving ourselves through three hours of motionless sitting and but by God we were on the pain the whole time didn't learn a thing I'm speaking personally <laughs> I didn't learn a thing but I got a grade A I got an A you see we wanted to make something out of the situation rather than letting the ends the means be the end resting our attention on it that is the end that's what it's all about that's what mindfulness is that's what it is no diplomas no grade cards you don't get a grade card here you get wisdom because you've seen it you've seen it you've actually experienced it and I don't mean intellectually mulling it over you've actually seen it in front of your eyes you've seen yourself arise in that moment you've seen fear develop you've seen where suffering comes from and you've seen how the eye is in the middle of that suffering and the Buddha's teaching then becomes a verb right along with the learning it's not a reference it's an activity But m- many of us are really afraid of allowing that kind of revelation in because it means change. Change is surrender. We can't partially change. When things come in, you either see it or you don't see it. If you see it, your life is changed. It's not You can't temper the change. It's, what we would like to do is let a little bit in and figure out whether we're going to go in the right direction if we let more in but if not we'll just go to some other subject you see we, we, we uh, modify but change is surrender you drop your arms and it comes in and you see and then your life is never the same that's what it is that's what insight is insight is dropping your arms and being blasted by the truth and you don't get up from that sitting in the same way as you sat down. You don't. Now it's not often that dramatic but it is ever bet ever it's just as dramatic in terms of its effect on us over time. And it's not, we don't, we don't, um, learning requires us to stop, to, to stop and really look. It's not, if we're on our way through this meditation with a painful knee and we're waiting for the pain to end or we're waiting for the next, the bell to end or we're waiting for something to alleviate the pain, then there's no learning that's taking on. There's waiting that's taking place. There's either waiting 
or there's learning because learning requires a full stop we're not we can't are waiting what we're what we're learning learning requires us to be present right we can't learn if you're not present but if you're waiting for this thing to end then your your attention is not going to be where the learning can access us you see that so it's 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 as if this is ne- our meditation is never okay the way it is. It's always, well, it needs some adjustment. I need more samadhi. Well, change, uh, we'll really allow ourselves to change when we stop and not when certain conditions are met through our waiting. When we just, that's it. Right now, here. That requires readiness. Readiness is the precursor, is the foundation on which learning occurs. We all have the ability to learn, but we don't all have the readiness to learn. It doesn't require intelligence to learn. It requires readiness. Many of us are too enamored by our present state of affairs, our present lifestyle our present set of conditions. We're not challenged enough in there. We're sleepwalking. You know, things are going pretty well. And so we don't have the readiness to really, we don't have the urgency, the readiness to look critically, stop critically, and throw this whole thing into a question. We don't want to throw it into a question. Things are they're just kind of, and not, well, you know, it, it goes like this. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, dead. So, that's what, that's, so where are we on that cycle? Because the boat's moving. So how you get, how engaged are we in our aliveness? How willing are we, how ready are we to critically ask the questions that are necessary for learning to take place? How, how really engaged are we in our spiritual life is another way of framing that. Sometimes we have to reach a kind of threshold of despair for for that crisis to occur in which we we are, unfortunately our species seems to be you know it only moves in crisis unfortunately but I I just think we ought to look at our lives in a way and say okay let me let's, let me ask this guy how much do I really want to learn about this. And just be honest wherever that question might take you. How much do you really want to learn? Where do you want to stop? Where are you where where don't you want to go? Where don't you want to contest? Look critically, ask critical questions. Where are we 
kind of sleepwalking our way through. Where am I holding on? And when have I lost my willingness to learn? Because where I've lost my willingness to learn, that's where I'm holding on. That's where I'm arrested. That's where our aliveness has deadened. That's where habit has taken over. That's where our conditioning is leading the way. That's where our heart is closed. I'm saying the same thing. That's where presence no longer matters. Awareness no longer, we don't care about it. And which would be fine if that condition would last forever. But unfortunately, the truth about conditions is that they don't last forever. And so do we have to wait until there's a crisis? Do we have to wait until we're on the edge of our life or when we're in the throes of divorce or when we're... three hours into a sitting to ask critical questions? How much do we really want to learn? So saying, how much do we really want to not do? Because there's the crisis. We're frolicking in our doing as long as it's the pleasant summer breeze. But the crisis of consciousness, the crisis of spiritual crisis is that willingness to understand that no condition lasts and therefore this too shall die. And therefore everything needs the immediacy of our attention. Everything. So that there are no dead spots in our learning. So that learning is continuous, is rich. And that means in communication, when we're with each other, we're learning. I noticed, you know, I I offer a retreat and... um, people will have spent critical time during that retreat learning about themselves. And then we'll break silence and in a flick of an eye everyone will have lost that reference and will engage in communication not from learning but from self-affirming, self-affirmation. Affirm me, affirm me, please affirm me through communication, please. Tell me I'm still here. Which is what many of our Many of us invite in our chatter, 
But communication can be the very conduit for learning, which is what we try to do in our KM groups, is to use the message, the means itself, wise speech, not to lose ourselves in that speech, but to be able to learn critically in relationship, in all relationships, interactive, alone with others. But we have to be willing to really ask the question, which is what the homework pertains to. So when you enter a situation, ask, can I learn more deeply about this? Which will put you into a non-doing mode, which will put you into a receptive mode rather than a fixing mode. Very similar to first understand first understand before being understood. It's the same thing. It's, a, it's just a different take on the same process. So use it to deepen your non-doing, but beware, you have to be willing to change because learning will ultimately take you to the crisis of heart where you're not learning where you're holding. That's what it does. It takes you to the crisis point. Okay. What do we think we're doing? Just kind of meditating our way through the waves? We're, we're bringing med- meditation is to take us to the crisis point where we're holding, where we're, we've stopped, where we've arrested, where we're fixed where we're irresolute, where we're fearful, the difficult areas of our life. And yet those aren't the places we want to learn. We just want to kind of, we'll learn about how nice happiness is. (laughs) So we'll have picnics and... (laughs) Not about the crisis of knee pain. I wish you all a week of learning. (laughs) Can we sit for a moment or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.